The following is the opening convocation address, Becoming Less, from John chapter 3, verses 22 through 30, given August 31st, 2017, by the Reverend Mr. Joel Kim, President of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. How are you doing is a question I get often these days, often with concerned looks. Are you doing okay with the emphasis in okay? Frankly speaking, I have actually no idea. Uh, When you're just beginning your job, as you're figuring things out, you actually have no basis to judge. And so I feel like I'm doing just fine without really knowing exactly where I'm supposed to be. But I have figured out three things in my short time here. Uh, as uh, in my new position. First, I know that there are lots of friends and family out there who are praying for us, for which all of us are grateful. The second thing I recognize is that this job is much more complex and complicated than I ever anticipated or even expected. Um, It reminds me of a time when I was a single man when I thought I was an expert in parenting until I became one, and you come to recognize that all your ideas and thoughts, as great as they were, at least in your own mind, turn out not so to be true. I've come to a greater gratitude and appreciation for my predecessors who've occupied this office with such grace and graciousness for many, many years before me. The third thing I learned thus far is the fact that I have wonderful coworkers who are incredibly talented and gifted. Both faculty and staff have surrounded me and encouraged me thus far, and every morning I get to work with these folks. It's a huge blessing, and I'm honored to be working alongside them. But one stressful part was thinking through, what do I say this morning to a group of students who are beginning their new school year as I begin my tenure here leading the institution? And the topic that I chose this morning comes from John 3, focusing on the idea of humility. Let me set the scene for you. There were two groups who were administering baptism. The first group, led by a man named John, was the original baptizing group in the Judean countryside. The second group, led by an upstart named Jesus, was the Johnny-come-lately of the baptizers, unknown until fairly recently. If the incumbent group remained popular, perhaps nothing would have happened. But tensions arose when the new group, the Jesus group, gained a greater following. This prompted John's disciples to ask, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. All Pontus are going to him. Some suggest that the statement is one of joy. Rabbi, as you predicted, everyone is now coming to Jesus. But this hardly fits the context or Jesus' answer that, I mean, John's answer that follows. The point is clear. John is no longer the most popular, successful, or recognized among the religious leaders of his time. His disciples see and hear of his declining star power and begin to wonder what John will do. Perhaps disappointing his disciples, John's answer was quite simple. He must become greater 
I must become less. To those of us trained in the art of success, strength, power, and influence where self-promotion is expected and encouraged, this text presents something completely counterintuitive and countercultural. Humility. In this passage, we get, get a glimpse of humility in action in the life of John. Here, we begin by pointing out that humility begins with a proper view of God. We need a proper view of God. When his disciples approached him with resentment and frustration, John answered them with this simple statement. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. From heaven here is a reverential circumlocution for from God. Everything comes from God. In other words, John states that all things come from God and that he is in charge. This is John's perspective and his theology. God is in charge. As simple as this sounds, John believes that God is indeed sovereign, that God created and sustains all things in life, including the providential care of his people. He is convinced that God's sovereignty stands behind hidden all things in life, including things and ministries that he has received. Perhaps this explains the rebuke of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, of chapter 4, where he says to the Corinthians, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Division was a major problem in the Corinthian church where some claimed to follow Paul, others Apollos, and still others Peter. In this dispute, they compare the relative merits of these leaders and then boasted of their own status and power in their proximity to these leaders. To them, Paul simply asks, did you forget that you received whatever you have? It is the height of folly and falsehood to claim anything good as their own doing when they fully know that all things come from God, from his gracious hand. John understood this. He possessed the proper sense of God's sovereignty in all matters of life. His successes belong to God. His failures are in God's hands. If God is indeed in charge, and if he does not make mistakes, to think or wish that we were someone else, perhaps doing something else, would not only expose the idolatries of our hearts, but also untreated distrust in God's gracious and generous provisions in us. I agree with D.A. Carson when he comments on this passage, deep discontentment over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithlessness, but the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. Humility begins with our proper understanding of who God is. At the same time, humility requires an honest view of self. A proper view of self is related to a proper view of God, as you know well. When God becomes bigger, here we become small. When we become bigger, God then becomes smaller in our lives. Perhaps like many of you, John had reasons to think himself big that perhaps he was somebody. 
You might remember his childhood. His birth was the stuff of legends, as you recall. Every child is a miracle in the eyes of the parents, as many of you here recognize, but he really was a miracle. Born to parents who are aging and who are unable to bear children. Before his birth, the angel of the Lord appeared before his father, Zechariah, and foretold the birth of his child who would be great before the Lord. It's amazing. 2007 is the birth year of my son, Simeon. I'm sure no one remembers this, but it was also the, the golden pig year, according to the Chinese calendar, or perhaps better, Korean calendar. What happens at that point is that every 600 years, the year of the pig becomes golden, and there were huge attempts in Asia, Asia to have uh, sons during that year because that son will be born to a prominent future was the belief. Well, if you want to consider that, this is amazing. The angels appeared before the father and told him how great he would be. The angel then goes on to state, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. It's an amazing prophecy. As if that were not enough, when Mary, the mother of Jesus, visited Elizabeth, who was then pregnant with John, we're told in Luke 41, the baby in Elizabeth's womb leapt for joy. When no one else knew and recognized, he recognized and bore witness to the Messiah even before he was born. Not only was this a birth that would be recognized by many, he was also a prophet. As a witness to Jesus, John, however, was more than a prophet, a messenger who precedes the Lord. He inaugurates the gospel. He was a prophet without equal as he prepares the way of the Lord. Not only did the angels declare that John will minister in the spirit and power of Elijah, he even looked the part. We're told in Mark 1.6, John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. We're told of someone like this in Malachi 4.5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah. Before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, he will, come, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse, we're told. Not surprisingly, when some Jews questioned him earlier in John chapter 1, one of the questions they asked him was, are you Elijah? Man endowed with such history, and past experiences, not surprisingly, was also successful in his ministry. The popularity of John was well known. Luke records that multitudes went out to hear him. Matthew tells us that people came to him from Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around the Jordan. Apparently, the multitude included all segments of the population, not only those who are poor and needy, even the most powerful, that even Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, summoned John to hear him preach. Mark tells us that Herod enjoyed the preaching as long as John's preaching remained fairly general, not approaching him personally. 
when John started to preach against Herodias, his new wife and former wife of his brother, saying that he should not be married to his brother's wife, the relation and the respect cooled. This angered Herodias so much that eventually she succeeded in having John arrested and eventually killing him. Despite these successes, accolades, adulations, and acceptance, what does John say of himself? He says in chapter 3, verse 28, simply, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John is referring to an event recorded in John 1, where leaders of the Jews approached John to ask him pointed questions. Recognizing the theme of trials in the book of John, some commentators have accurately described this as a trial, putting John on the witness stand as they initially asked him, who are you? Who are you? Identify yourself because I need to go back. We need to return and tell them who you think you are. I always found his answer puzzling and interesting that ESV keeps the original order when he says he confessed and did not deny, and he confessed. He confessed, did not deny, and he confessed. What did he confess? I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. This is John's witness and testimony. On the one hand, he testifies that Jesus who comes after him is the Lord, the Christ, the promised Messiah. On the other hand, he testifies that he is not the Christ. Friends, I don't know if you're going to be surprised by this, but I am not the Christ. <laughs> don't be alarmed or offended by this, neither are you. You are not Christ's either. Who do you think you are? For those who are wondering, what have I done this morning as you think about the semester upcoming and struggling with the uncertainties about your future as a student, future minister, or parents, do you know that you are not the Christ? For pastors who fluctuate daily between elation and depression based upon the number of people in the pew or the seeming successes or failures of their recent sermon, do you know that you are not the Christ? Perhaps you are like me. I often try to punch beyond my weight. Given the recent weekend, perhaps that analogy fits. Or perhaps to change the analogy, I attempt things beyond my pay grade. For those like me, having difficulty with self-awareness, the scripture reminds us over and over again that you and I are not Christ's. Perhaps this is a good place where we're reminded of Charles Spurgeon, that good Baptist, who said in a way that no one else can copy when he says, be content to be nothing, he said, for that is what you are. Be content to be nothing, for that is what you are. Do you know what characteristics indicate that we think we are Christ's? That I think I am Christ? It's a life of independence. 
when we're raising children, we rejoice at the milestones that they hit. When she starts walking by herself, when he starts to ride bike on his own, when she starts to drive to school, when he goes off to college, when she gets married and owns a home, these are all milestones. And we say, you know what? As independent as they become, it indicates their successes and their maturity. This is the world's logic. However, the scripture's logic is completely the opposite. As you grow in maturity, you realize you're not strong enough. You're not knowledgeable enough. You're not wise enough. You become ever more dependent, recognizing that you are not the creator. You are not the sustainer. You are not Christ's. You cannot help yourself that at the end, our helplessness is what we come to recognize further. Only God can what we cannot. It not only puts proper perspective and light upon who God is, the creator of heavens and the earth. Humility begins when we recognize who we really are, people created and dependent upon the Lord, who is our redeemer and our savior. But perhaps we can take this one more step further and say humility demands that we forget ourselves before Christ. We forget ourselves before Christ. In the person of John, we don't detect any sense of reluctance in seeing Jesus rise to prominence. Rather, he finds great joy in the glory of Christ. Not only did he consistently declare that he is not the Christ, he also recognized that he had a particular role, that of a signpost heralding the coming of the Messiah. As he says in verse 29, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Using an illustration of a wedding that perhaps many of you have experienced on your own as well, John sees himself as the best man. He refers to him as the friend of the bridegroom. He is there for the groom by organizing and overseeing the wedding festivities. What brings this friend great joy? That the festivities proceed without any problems, and the bride and the groom are happily together. The glory of Jesus is what he was looking for. This glory of his master Jesus, upsetting to some of his disciples, actually filled John with great joy because in Jesus is found the salvation that John has been proclaiming. In fact, our section here is enveloped by the note of salvation as we hear in John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It ends with these words in verse 36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. As Paul says, who died for you? No one has, certainly not I. The new age has begun. The light of life is shining before them and the promised Messiah is here right before them in Jesus Christ. 
and before us. In welcoming the Messiah who brings this new life, John stands in between two periods and has done exactly what he was sent to do, what he was expected to do. This is why in verse 29 he's able to say, this joy of mine is now complete. His joy is complete. This truth then grounds his attitude in life. He must increase. I must decrease. Christ must increase. Joel must decrease. Christ must increase. Westminster Seminary must decrease. This is not an option. He must increase. I must decrease. To be honest, they go hand in hand. Christ's growing glory in me means my decrease in my glory. This is not because our humility increases his glory, but our lack of humility clouds his glory. Galatians 2.20 reminds us, the Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are forgotten, and Christ shines. Tim Keller, a PCA minister in New York, wrote a little booklet called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. In it, he talks about biblical humility, which I found to be very helpful when he says, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not always be telling us they were a nobody, because who does that, right? The person who is self-preoccupied. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Let me say that last part again. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Thinking of myself less. A good friend of mine named Henry, I remember the change that he underwent when he became a first-time parent. He said when he was married without a child, when he woke up in the morning, the first thoughts were about himself. But when he had his first daughter, when he would wake up, the first thought was, is Sabrina awake? What does she need? How can I help her? We know what it means to forget about our, ourselves in many ways. However, practice is much harder than our conviction and our theory. What we come to realize is that true humility begins when we think of ourselves less. In a dramatic development, John the Baptist, in the Gospel of John, disappears. 
We hear mentions of him later on that he died, but there is no entrance of John the Baptist anymore, no more dialogue. In fact, this scene becomes his final testimony, final witness stand moment for John. Unlike Matthew, who records that John the Baptist was beheaded, the Gospel of John is simply silent. It is almost as if John lived out what he proclaimed. He must increase, and I must decrease. Brothers and sisters, I trust that you, this year and the years to come, will learn a lot during your years in seminary. From these wonderful pastor scholars, you will learn about Greek and Hebrew, how to exegete a passage well, preaching the whole counsel of God, historical events and figures that predate us, theological topics with awe-inspiring precision, and so on. This is an incredible blessing that waits you, awaits you. But there is also danger in our growing knowledge. The danger of thinking that you know more than you actually do. The danger of thinking that the amount of your knowledge is what is required for service in the church. The danger of thinking that giftedness is much more important than godliness. And the inclination to hide behind your giftedness and your busyness thinking that's blessedness. Please don't misunderstand me here. Do enjoy your studies. Do devote yourselves to the study of the word day and night. Be faithful with your required readings and be diligent in preparing for your exams and papers. But as you grow in your knowledge, I hope you also become more self-aware, aware of your lack and growing need for God. I hope you become awed by the holiness and perfection of God and your utter dependence on him for all things. I hope that you, as future leaders of the church, ministers in the Church of Christ, as well as members who are being faithful, and us as an institution, may become more humble. Because this life of ministry is not about you, nor is it about me, but about Christ, whom we proclaim. May this mind explain to us in the text the mind of Christ richly dwell in you in order that you yourself might be forgotten and that Christ in you might be seen, visible, exalted in your lives and in your ministries. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, who are we, O Lord, that you are mindful of us? Who are we that you condescend to us to be with us? We're grateful that you demonstrate your love for us in the very fact that Christ your Son came to die for us while we were yet sinners, turning the ungodly into sons and daughters of God. Humble us before your sight, O Lord so that we may come to you recognizing that apart from you, our lives are meaningless. Apart from you, O Lord, we have no purpose. Apart from you, O Lord, our message is unclear. So Lord, teach us. Teach us daily as our great discipler to know you more in your word and to declare it faithfully, that in our lives and the life of this institution, that Christ will be foremost exalted in all ways. 
For we pray these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Copyright 2017, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.